what I want to do before, because our, our focus here is there's four concepts I want you to remember. Um, it's urban, government, health care, and ministry. Urban, government, health care, and ministry. Um, if you actually look through your syllabus, there's actually very few urban government talks. I think this is about the only one. Now, a lot of them relate to that, but not specifically to that. And uh, th- there's some reasons, I think, for that. Historically, uh, a lot of mission work was done in rural areas, in a lot of Africa, uh, in um, South America. Asia is a little bit different. Uh, a lot of it because uh, since uh, World War II and afterwards, you have a lot of changes in Asia that have taken place with governments, and even we see some of that now. Uh, but there's been a lot of changes in Asia that have affected how they relate to mission organizations. There is no place in Asia where there was not historically mission organizations going back hundreds of years, but at some point, most of them were kicked out. I'm going to talk about uh, China mostly today, but everything I'm going to say is going to apply elsewhere. China changed abruptly in 1949 with their, uh, the end of their civil war when uh, Mao Zedong and the communists took over, and they're still in power today. But before that, if you would go back to the early, late 1700s, early 1800s, and go up to 1949, most of their modernization of healthcare in China was related to mission work. In fact, you can go places now. I've, I went to a hospital in a, the large capital city where I lived in. I didn't live in the capital city. It was in the province called Jinan. And the, I said, that building does not look Chinese. They said, oh, no. The Methodists built that 100 years ago. Methodist missionaries built that hospital. They know. They know the history of these things. So the question though today is how can we do that? So it's urban, government. You can be in urban places and not work for the government. This can be urban government. Healthcare. You have to do all those together. That's just where my life ended up. And um, I'll give you a bit one thing. Before we do that, how many of you have lived in a city for at least one year of over 100,000? Raise your hand. Okay. 500,000? A million? Keep your hands high, real high. Come on, come on. Uh, two million? Um, five million? Yeah. Uh, ten million. I know these two here. So ten million, so they're in Shanghai. Where were you? Manila. And in the back? Didn't you have your hand up? Yeah, so, yeah, those are big cities. So, there is, we'll look at some demographics. Of that, um, how many of you are in either are either medical doctors or are in medical school uh, PhD kind of programs? Raise your hand. See that. Okay. How about nursing? Nursing. Okay. Uh, allied health, pharmacy, and uh, administration kind of stuff. Yeah. Actually, all of this will apply. I'm a medical doctor, so it's going to come from that angle. But there's not a point I'm going to make that will not apply to everyone in here. Uh, now, I was born and raised, as I said, in Texas. And in fact, the town I was raised, actually I was out in the country, 
was um, about 40,000. It's now about 100,000. It's in East Texas. And I lived actually outside of it by a few miles. So I grew up in the country where we had or we let our dogs just run wherever they wanted to go. We had some horses. We had some cows, chickens, and foxes, lots of things like that. So that wasn't the life I grew up in. I kind of slowly over my life moved into being involved in, uh, in, in urban ministry. And it's different. It is. And it has a lot of differences. The one big difference is, well, let me ask you, what are the differences for those of you who lived in urban place? You call it, what, what are their size? Urban. What are the differences between living in non-urban areas, however you want to define that? What are differences? Traffic. Traffic, yes. Terrible. Pollution. Pollution, yes. Crowding, yes. Yeah, transportation in general. Sanitation. Sanitation. Safety. Safety. Yeah, racial diversity. I'm sorry. Everything's like much further apart in like the countryside. Yeah, yeah, and and it's they're built vertically. For example. I live now in uh, Raleigh, the Raleigh-Durham area, and I live in Raleigh. To get to any place on foot to buy anything, I can actually see it driving, but it'd take me about 10 to 15 minutes to get to. In China, we could, walking, get virtually everything we needed within 10 to 15 minutes walking. There's advantages and disadvantages to all of these things, especially as they apply to life and ministry. So I'm just going to kind of walk you through a couple of things. We're going to look at this. There's going to be three things. My story, because that was the best. As I thought about this, I thought, well, how am I going to communicate this uh, to, to you? But I'm just going to tell you what I did. And you'll, you'll see things as they go. But feel free to ask me questions during my talk, and I'll try to leave some time at the end. Put this on. talk to you about some results and then I'll talk to you some main themes that you can take home with this. Um, Things with results and with putting this together, they're actually if you go try to Google those four terms, urban, government, healthcare, ministry, there's nothing that will come up. It doesn't exist. You said it's a bit broad. It is the way the, the search engines work, but there is nothing out there. There's actually no books written. I don't know of any papers. Now, I'm around a lot of people that have done this, same thing, but they haven't written on it. So there's not anything out there. If you're looking to say, well, there are papers, books, there's, if you find something, let me know, but there's not anything out there. Now, there's reasons for that, as I mentioned earlier. There's security issues with that. Many people that live in big urban cities which a lot of these are Asian. 60% of the world's population is Asian, and 40% are Chinese and Indian. So a lot of those places, are they have visa issues to keep you from doing certain things, and it, there's limitations on you. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. But anyways, that's why there's nothing out there. In results, if, you, if you've been in some of these talks, like the one I was in before was unusual tropical diseases, there's a lot of research. There's a lot of things on the WHO. There's no studies on any of this with doing this. Do you have the, the Chinese hospitals and a lot of the Asian hospitals and all hospitals will do a lot of data gathering on how we're doing. It's actually, I'm, they, there's just data pouring out every week into my inbox from Duke on what I'm doing and how I'm doing. There's 
there's nothing on this. It just does not exist. There's not outcome data on what this looks like. So I just want to say that up front as we walk through it. You're going to go, well, is there any other information? There actually is not. Okay. I'm going to start. Okay. There's great health. Let me put this. There we go. Is it not landing on there? Nope, it's not. It's not. It's not working on it. Okay. Number one, there's great health and there's great outcomes. So we want to do that. There's also spiritual outcomes. The problem is how to balance the two. Pulled out these verses. So Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the whole land of Egypt. There has been godly men that have been in charge and been in leadership in that place. That was Cairo, which was the epicenter of the world at that time. The king put Daniel in charge of the whole province of Babylon. That was, again, the epicenter. It wasn't health care, but it was definitely urban, definitely government, and definitely had spiritual outcomes because every one of them, especially Daniel, definitely challenged spiritually the... The, the, the systems of the day. But this is the worst I want to call you and you're up to date with on the Hebrews 11.26. By faith, Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ and as greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Now think about that. We inhale, You want to do a good job. You really want to do a very good job. The question is, when you finish, what do you want to have left? Now, I, I say that because as you move into this world of urban and government, if you don't decide it, it will be decided for you. Now, if you go work in a mission hospital, that's very helpful. I worked in Ethiopia with, with, a, with, a, with an NGO and with, an, uh, with their mission organization too. And everybody, everybody on the team were Christians. And everybody, in fact, everybody we worked with were Christians. There were some difficulties because it was a Marxist-controlled government. We had some limited freedom, though, at that time. But you need to decide, though, if you're going into these kind of settings, what do you want to see as your ultimate outcome? And you need to be thinking that up front because if you wait to get there, it will be decided for you once you get there. Okay, globalization. In 1950-30, I'm going to show you in the next slide, we'll tease this out a little bit more clearly. In 1950, 30% of the world's population was urban. And by 2050, 66% of the world's population is projected to be urban. I don't think there's any country spared with this. And, and you see this here in the United States. There's more and more. Where, where I live in Raleigh-Durham, it was um, about uh, 10 years ago, a million. And about 10 to 15 more years, it be 2 million. This is that a little bit more clear. 1950, the population was 2.5 billion, 30%. So it was about just under 1 billion that was urban. That's the world. It's not the United States, the world. 2014, 7.4 billion, 54% or 4 billion urban. Notice that was more than the 2.5 billion in 1950, the total world population. 2050, 9.5 billion, 66%, 6.3 billion. That's almost the same as what it is now. Much more urbanized world, and it'll continue. Now, I don't think anyone has any idea if that's going to plateau out, go down. With I've, I've really wondered with 
the advent of things like uh, drones and other things like that, will that change some of what we need to be urbanized? Or is it that there's so much advantage of living urban, they overcome all of those? But for right now, and, and, and I would probably say it looks like for most of you, through a good part of your career, the world will continue to urbanize more and more. And that's the world we would live in. And that would be the world that we would do mission work in. Most of the people will be there. If you were to see that 30%, so somewhere, if you were to go back to the last 1800s, probably, I didn't look at that data specifically, would probably 10 to 15% was urban, most were rural. If we go back and look at the mission stories then of the 1800s, most of those people were working with people that were rural. Most mission hospitals were built in rural places. And if you hear these talks, which are very good, they're talking about what is rural. When I was in Ethiopia, their work was rural. And they, they did that start in the 1960s. Most work in Ethiopia is still rural, though it's urbanizing more and more and more. So here's my story. I told you I was raised, but I was raised in a healthcare family. All my family's believers. My father was an anesthesiologist. He worked uh, until he, I was 16 when he passed away the last six years of his life. He spent four to five months working overseas in mission hospitals, helping them develop anesthesia programs for CNAs and things like that. So I was able in uh, medical school in my residency to do some things, like uh, I did a, a short-term trip to Mexico through our medical school. And then in my residency program, the, where there was a church that had an indigent clinic, I was able to work there periodically. And I mentioned Ethiopia, and I worked in a, I was a, in a, it was a famine situation in the late 80s. Now, I, I mention all of these because if you do these things, all these things become really additive. There's things you'll do that you'll do five years, ten years down the road, you go, you know, that helped me on that mission trip. There's things I learned there. Or when I, was, when I worked at those indigent clinics, working with indigent people is the same around the world. There's just a different surface veneer of, how it's financed and follow-up and things like that. But people kind of have the same problems. They're either they're poor and they're more likely uneducated. And it does the same problems any place in the world you have to deal with. This question is, how are you going to deal with it? So I, I want to say these, that as you move in your life, take advantage of things you can really take advantage of. Even if it's a sh- short-term thing, small things, those things really become additive over time. We'll look back and go, that was helpful, that was helpful, that was helpful, that was helpful things they said to me, all those things. So I wanted to mention that in my life because those things will become helpful. There's actually nothing here that when I got to China and did more urban government work that didn't factor in. They were all very helpful to me. Okay. I just mentioned that. And so we'll come to this. Okay. So when I was in Ethiopia, I finished my training, went there for two years. I met my wife, who's Australian. We got married. And on our way back, uh, well, just about a couple months before we came back, my wife was expecting our first child. Now, we actually always thought, we're going to go back to Ethiopia. That's where we're going. That's where God's going to lead us back to. And so we came to the United States, and it took us actually 10 years to get my wife's green card. Who, who has a green card has applied for one? Okay. It's actually much easier now than it is in in the past. It took us, because we didn't have any money, and we didn't know how to apply for green cards, it took us about four to five years ourselves. In the meantime, we had 
And I'll show you this in just a second. We had children. And then when we applied back to get with the mission organization, you get a green card, they had a moratorium because of some legal issues between them and the government. So it took us 10 years to actually get a green card and go back overseas. In the meantime, I worked with the North Carolina Baptist men in mobile dental vans overseas, which came to factor into my work in China. I wasn't even thinking about that, but it did. And I worked with the local Duke, UNC, CMDA, and that factored in with me working with medical students, two of which are in this room here at that time. And there, I never thought about working with students at Duke and UNC would have any impact, but I, I was in that mindset of thinking about sharing the gospel with students because I was already involved with that. In 1997, I was asked by a friend to go to China to help him with some lecturing. He had actually asked me in 94. I couldn't go. I had some people go in 95, 96. 97, he said, can you go? I said, yeah, I guess we'll go. But we're still going. But my wife and I said, we're still going to, to Ethiopia. Three weeks before we leave, we left on that trip. My wife's uh, father died in Australia. And she had actually already told him goodbye. And she told him about six months before that, we, I won't see you again. It's too hard with my kids and all to leave. And so I thought, oh, we won't be going. This is kind of Killed that. Now, by that time, we were still thinking about Ethiopia. In my mind, I was wondering, what if God's leading me to China? On the trip, it was uh, hard for my wife, both emotionally but physically. She got sick. She was sick the whole time. We came, came back and she said, I think this is the last time we'll be in China. And so she said that pretty seriously. It wasn't a joke. And so I thought, okay, we'll deal with that down the road. But I thought, that's probably it. About four months later, she came up and said, do you still want to go to China? And I said, yes, let's see how God leads. And so God led us to China. The second important point I want to make, the first one was use those opportunities that you have available. Just try to get involved with things. Your church, short-term trips, can I help with the mission committee? What can I do? Those things. This is the second important point. Don't let the time or other issues frustrate your seemingly our good plan was to go to Ethiopia, but we still had that on our mind to go. Don't, but don't let, that was 10 years. We never thought we'd be in the United States more than 6 to 12 months. 10 years. Continue to develop your leadership skills. Use times like these to build, I think, interpersonal relationships. The reason to do, get involved, the number one reason, what's the number one reason that people involved in missions or ministry return home. It's not, it's not a U.S. thing. What's the number one reason? Conflict. Yeah, conflict. Team conflict. That's the number one reason. Now, actually, there, there are things with parents and children, those things, but team conflict is a big deal. And so that's why developing these skill sets of interpersonal relationships really will help. Overseas. Don't, don't, if, you can't, if you don't have your time frame or anything involved like you want it, then then don't worry about it. Don't be frustrated with things that don't go your way. Now, this is my daughter's, not now. This is just before we went. Now, remember, you see the one in the green? She's actually 27 now. But that puts, well, my, my point I put up there is that when she, we were expecting her, we thought we were going back. In fact, we thought just about the time she's born, we're going to be back in Ethiopia. This was just when we left to go to China. <coughs> That times change, and you have to deal with the God who blessed us with four daughters, and we're, we're, we're glad to have them. 
But I, I just put this up. It's a visual. It's a visual graphic of really how much you did in those ten years. You know, there's a lot of life that you were living, but we we did that. Now our kids turned out in China, like everywhere around the world. Kids are a great tool to minister with. They are, because everyone likes kids, right? They may not like you, but they like kids, right? Can I see your kids? Are your kids cute? That's nice. That's nice. And little girls are very easy to like too, right? Okay. So I landed in China in 1999 with my wife, Mary, and four daughters, and we started to learn Chinese. Now, I did not know but one word of Chinese, ni hao. I'd heard that before I came. That was it. How many of you can speak Chinese? I know you two. There's two here. Anybody else besides these two Chinese? Anybody else? Yeah, there's... Are you Chinese? Okay, there you go. <laughs> it's a hard language to learn. There's a lot of other languages that are hard. Korean, Japanese, Amharic. There's a lot of languages, Arabic. I know they're hard. Chinese just is hard. Uh, because you've got to learn these characters. And it just takes work. And I remember we were put with our, not with our daughters. We had four daughters. And we, we went to class every morning from 8 to 12. It was a class about this size. Everyone in there were single Koreans about 18 to 22. <laughs> and the Koreans actually, by nature of their language, learn a thousand Chinese characters because it's built into their language. For Japanese, about 3,000 characters are built in. So they can learn Chinese reading and writing much faster than we can. In fact, the first day, second day of class, the teacher goes to a, a Korean person, can you get up and write this character? The one they did, I thought, how'd they do that? The next day they asked me, and I thought, I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> now, we slowly got to where we can speak Chinese and we can, we can communicate, we can communicate, but it's hard to do. We went to the local health department. So, so what did I do? When I got there, actually, a guy had gone before me and had gone to the major teaching hospital and asked a guy, could you use an American doctor to come help you? He said yes, but you have to learn cultures are important to know. Chinese and many other cultures too, they won't tell you no to your face up front. They won't. They just don't do it. They'll say yes. That doesn't mean that they're going to do it. That just means that you have an agreeable conversation right there. That's about it. Now, you may come back the next week and nothing happens. That I went to talk to the guy and I just thought, he was a nice guy. He just did not seem interested. So I went to the major teaching hospital, which is actually the same one he worked at, but he worked in the residence division, getting the residence programs going. I went there, and I gave him my CV. I thought, well, it had, it had Duke on it. I worked for Duke for about five years at that time. That looked good. Well, actually, at that time, it's changed a little bit, but Duke was on there was no different than saying my middle school on there. It, did, it just didn't carry any difference than that. They just didn't know. And it didn't care. But, there's, but it was more than that. Even if they had known what it was. And the Chinese culture, and this is true. In the, in the, if you remember what I said about relationships at the end of that last slide before, that becomes key. All societies, but I think the Asian, African cultures, are more built on relationships than we are in America. Ours is contractual. If you uh, go get your car done, buy your car, it's contractual. There, though... The basis of Chinese interactions is totally relationships. I did not know that. Now, fortunately and providentially, on my next point, I went to the local. I said, well, what am I going to do now? I've gotten rejected. I'm 0 for 2 here in the first uh, two months. 
because it took me a while to even to find where these places were. I couldn't speak Chinese. I couldn't talk to the taxi drivers. That was slowing me down. So I went to the local health department, which happened to be near an office we had rented. We had to register a company to be able to live there to get a visa. So I went to the health department every week for six months. And I know that was probably annoying to them. And I didn't even, and, and a lot of times for Chinese, you don't necessarily set appointments like us. If I was to walk into your office every week, if you're the head of the health department, without an appointment, that would be annoying. That would be a way not to get, get in to their good graces. That doesn't make that much difference in China. They're not as appoint, they are, but not as appointment-driven as we are. So I, I learned that. They didn't really seem to be bothered. But I finally was able to say, how can I help you? I finally realized there's some things they're gonna they want, but what are they? I learned that they because I would hear them say some things in conversations, and they finally said, "Can you help me with hepatitis, TB, and dental work?" I said, well, "I can do that. I'm not, not that I can help. I've not been very good at either. That's not been my focus, but I can bring people in to do that. Unbeknownst to me, God brought into my life a godly Korean doctor." Now, this guy was unusual. He was a head of a Korean hospital, uh, actually a Baptist Korean hospital. He was a very committed, godly man. He uh, was at that time about 70, 75. He was also was a pulmonologist. He had been vice president of the World TB Association and was the former emeritus head of the Korean, South Korean TB Association. I had met him but didn't know that. Then I asked if he could come. Finally, I heard about that. I said, well, can you come help me give a lecture in this other city called Jinan? And he did. Now, the Chinese quickly found out who he was because two weeks later, he was doing the same lecture in the city that I lived in. And on his coattails is what I kind of scooted in. Now, just think about that. They, go, they, they gave me those three things to do. Actually, hepatitis, I never really did anything with that because I didn't actually need that to be helpful. So, they, with him, Dr. Kim, he's quite elderly now and back in South Korea, but because he knew a lot of people and knew a lot of Koreans, because of that's a very impeccable pedigree. To be head of a hospital, vice president of the International TB Association, former head of the South Korean TB Association, that's a very good pedigree on his CV. And plus, the Chinese just relate better to the Koreans than they do to me. And that's just a cultural... And I learned that real quick. I thought they're going to... After I watched this, I thought, I'm always going to be second or third fiddle on that. And I had to learn to kind of accept it. I was never really introduced as the person that brought him into the system. Never. But I was because somebody else, another Korean guy, told me about him. And when I said, I said, oh, he's the guy that can help me. And I did. I got him this place in Jinan, back in Qingdao. But you have to kind of learn. That's eating humble pie. But it was, in the long run, it was good. Okay. So, I'd gone to the health department. And remember I said dental? A friend of my church was a dentist. And he said, you admit, he told me, well, I'd emailed him, I said, Peter, you remember the dental equipment we talked about bringing over here? Can you bring it? So he did. 
where all these suitcases and stuff brought it in. But I said, do you mind going with me to this dental hospital? Now, China has dental hospitals. That sounds odd. We don't have those. The dental hospitals we have are at your dental schools, but they have separate dental hospitals just because there's so many people and they need help. So they, 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 this, this hospital I'm going to tell you about has 130 dentists in it. And they do have some private dentists, but that's only recent start. But anyways, three, God brought that. And then just as this dentist left, he came over for a week, came to this dental hospital that the, the, the health department wanted me to go to, and I went. He did a dental procedure and left. But I, that put me in the door of two of the three things they wanted me to do, dental and TB. The other, just as he's leaving, he's like, we're driving out to the airport. He goes, you know, there's two other guys from our church that want to come out and do something. I thought, we were really busy with our kids, really busy with Chinese, and I thought, I don't know if I have more time. Because volunteers take time. You've got to be with them. You've got to spend time with them if they're going to come out. You can't just put them to work. Because at night, they don't have anything to do sometimes. You've got to be with them, spend time with them. I said, oh, okay, I want to have a good relationship with my church. That, though was the providential thing that God put into my life. So those two guys come out. I asked the health department, what do you want to do? And they put them, one in one hospital, one in their... They call it the CDC. It's not like ours. It's really... It's the same function, but at a city level to do stuff that the health department doesn't does. With our, the United States CDC does, but at local level. It's kind of data gathering and all that kind of stuff. The one the CDC, which I wanted to happen, materialized, never did. The one going to this hospital. Now, let me back you up just a bit. I was to meet someone about a month before that at a hospital. So I go into meeting, and I get there. He wasn't there. I thought either he didn't want to meet me, I'm at the wrong place, which I thought was a real good possibility. Because I was still learning my way around town. And I wasn't sure when I was telling the taxi driver if they actually really knew what I was saying. So I went to this place. They weren't there. I thought, well, I'll just go around and pray. And so I did. I walked around the hospital and said, Lord, if this is a place for us to work, just open the doors. Now, from that moment till today, that door is still open. I'll tell you the story here. So the dentist goes to the hospital, and then... Uh, yes, so... I went to meet this, this, this guy that was there, the, the, the guy from my church. He left. So I thought that lady was actually very nice, the head of the doctor, head of foreign affairs. I went to her, Dr. Ma, and she was very nice. So I had a friend come, a Chinese friend, who worked with me. I knew well. I said, can we make sure we're on the same page? Her English was fairly good. I said, what can we do to help you? Same question. She started saying, well, if you can just bring some people in from other places in the United States to give lectures. So God allowed me, number three, to bring in a lot of people to lecture. And God allowed me to be a Chinese-American to where he had a master's in public health from Michigan, Elwin, Elvin, a guy. And he, I said, well, he was a Chinese-American, spoke pretty good Chinese, not great. I said, well, Elvin, I'm going to put you in the medical school and let you go over there across town and just share the gospel. And he did. And a number of students, two of them which are here, came to faith. So, 
2002. That was 2001. I went not. I went every week to Dr. Ma's office, just like with the health department. I quit going to the health department. I went to Dr. Ma's office every week just to see how things were going to keep those relationships building. In 2002, Beijing got the Olympics for 2008, right? It's a six-year. It runs six years, if you haven't figured that out. Six years before they get, they get the bid. There's a couple things that roll into place, which I did not know. Cause, but one of them is that the host cities, which has venues, has to have a clinic designed for the athletes and tourists. For London and the United States, that's not a big deal, right? You already have the hospitals there. You just direct people as they come in. For China, they didn't have any English-speaking clinics. They came to me to ask them to get to help them open this clinic. Now, what the clinic was, it did not exist. It was, it was going to be an international clinic, English-speaking, and that's where I came in. My Chinese was pretty good by then. But that God allowed that to happen. And God brought them to do that. Now, overnight, I became a faculty on that hospital. That gave me instant credibility. And I had a name card. I still actually have the name tag. Uh, you know, your tag you wear. And then I had, I had name cards. So if Chinese were going to ask me, well, what do you do here? And I say, I work for that hospital. I had instant credibility. Also, the Chinese hospitals are big. Uh, uh, average Chinese hospital is about 1,000 beds. That's a large American hospital, if you want to know. I mean, the biggest one I know of in the world is in Chengdu with like 5,000 beds. It's massive. This hospital had a thousand beds, and instantly, because I was the only white doctor, everybody in the hospital knew exactly who I was. Now, here's what started to happen. In in this, I'm going to shift back. I'll come to that in just a second. Uh, one guy brought a full-time dentist to work with me. Just an email appeared in my box in 2003 or 2002, 2003. This guy wanted to come work full-time to be there and serve and work and minister. That door was already open to that dental hospital. He worked there full-time. They were happy to have him. That door is still open from that day till today. Very, and I'll tell you that story a little bit later. So the medical students, that, that God opened that door to this friend. And many doctors were ministered to. Now, here's how we did it. We didn't plan. The, when we were... This was moving for me to be a part of this hospital. I was living in another place, but the rent got too expensive, so we had to move. We moved just at that time. This same hospital, Qingdao Municipal Hospital, which I was already on staff with, said, we're going to build a new hospital over there, and our house was right behind it. <laughs> then we moved to You could literally walk over there in five or ten minutes from that hospital. We just started asking people to come over. We'd say, for the, my department, the international, would have the doctors and nurses come over. Cardiology would have them come over. We'd share the gospel. We'd ask them to come over at times like Christmas, Thanksgiving, things that we were doing. Say, here's what we do at these times of year and share the gospel. We saw people come to faith. I want to go back to the very thing we're talking about. We're talking about urban, government, hospital, and ministry. Okay, you have to keep those. Now, again, a lot of God really opened these doors. If, if I hope you're seeing, there's a lot of things that were happening beyond my pale of control. The Olympics, the International Clinic, them asking me, those kind of things were beyond my control. I, that, I could, there's no way I could have done that. And those, 
God could have actually shut every door and I would have left because there was nothing to do. I just couldn't. You can only try to knock on doors so much before the frustration level can be overwhelming. But God continued to slowly open doors. The dentist came and worked there. The medical students, the doctors and nurses to our house. The doors of ministry then, by then, by 2003, 4, and 5, were fairly wide open. In 2005, my wife's mother uh, was getting quite ill, and she lived in um, Australia. Even though it was geographically closer, it was more difficult for us to get there with our organization, with any, with the, my organization that was with guidelines as for my wife and I as to how we could take time. So we said, well, we need to come back to the United States so my wife can go spend more time. But between now, then and now, God providentially, so I said, I'm leaving, I don't know what will happen. Within about a year, just down the road from me in Winston-Salem, was a guy, another Chinese-American doctor. Now, he's like me in the sense of education. He is born and raised, went to uh, undergraduate medical school and residency in internal medicine in the United States. But he spoke pretty good Chinese because of his parents. From 2007 or 8 till now, he's still ministering there. Kept that door exactly open. He's still ministering to a lot of people there. Now, I couldn't have planned that. And we are coming back and then immediately his coming in. So God has continued to open that door. Now, um, I was there this spring. And I actually went over there for a group of people like me that do healthcare ministry in Asia. But we meet with the, the U.S. CMDA. They do CME for us, continuing medical education in Thailand. Alternate years, we created a group, and they were meeting alternate years. So I went, because I really wanted to. I just could not get there to that meeting. So I went. Then I go back up to Qingdao, but I'd been there before, many times since I've left. This time, though, they asked me this. I knew some of this was coming. But until you get asked, you don't know what's going to happen. When I was there, they said, Would you, we, we want to do more primary care. And you said, well, isn't that what they do anyways? They actually don't. Many Asian, especially Chinese hospitals, if you go to see a doctor in the hospital, and all their doctors are in the hospital. They're not in outside clinics. All the clinics are in the hospital. You have to understand this. If you say, well, I've got chest pain. And you go, let's say you're totally non-medical. And you go, hmm, you should go see. Oh, cardiothoracic surgeon, that sounds good. You should go see them. They run up a lot of tests. And they go, it's not that. And that's it. There's nothing else happens. So they leave with their records. They're just getting uh, electronic medical records now. So they'll take their records. And they go, I'm no better. Hmm. Orthopedic surgeon. They asked her name and they said, go to that orthopedic surgeon in the hospital. You go to the orthopedic surgeon. That, that continues to three or four or five doctors. Well, some of that is very straightforward given your age. So primary care is developing there. So that's what I do. And, and I brought over a lot of people. I brought over electrophysiologists. I brought over a lot of subspecialists that they wanted. Now, uh, so they asked me to, to, to help them with that. Duke has an office down in Quinshan near between Beijing and Shanghai. I know Shanghai and Nanjing. Uh, that they've, uh, a school they've opened. I'm not sure they're going to help. But they've asked me to help them develop primary care. Now, I'm not sure if that's going to happen. 
But there, notice this continuous over the years that's continuing to bear fruit. For us to physically have a presence in an urban area, in a, in a, in a government hospital, as a doctor, doing health care and sharing the gospel. Those are still open now to today. For example, I'm gonna, uh, this past um, year, one of the doctors here in the room, his wife was here with him. She's an ophthalmologist. There's another couple that came to faith through that other Chinese doctor, the other internist that took my place. That couple was at Duke, both doing some visiting scholar work for a year. The six of us would meet for Bible study and discipleship every week. If I was 1999, 2000, 2001, I would not have imagined that that would have happened. It's way beyond the pale of what I would have even thought. Okay, the third important point. You may say, well, gosh, that all looked really good, but actually there's a lot of time where things did not go well. Many of these times there's months and a year or so between things happening. Do not grow weary in well-doing for in due time. That's in Galatians 6, I think, 9. Do not grow weary in well-doing for in due time you'll reap a harvest if you do not give up. God, continue, continue to work through hard doors which God has opened. Don't relent. Okay. All right. This was this April in the city I lived in, in China. If you can read Chinese, you know where it is, but I'm not going to tell you where it is. Um, in the early 2000s, in, how many of you have gone to the um, saline solution breakout sessions here? There's two of them. With Walt Larimore? Okay. So the saline solution is what Walt Larimore started in the I think 1990s. It's called the Grace Prescription now in the United States. We tried to do in the early 2000s in Hong Kong that we had about four or five Chinese doctors there. It, it was did not go well. For there's a lot of reasons it didn't go well. The material that we actually presented was the one we we gave the the Chinese a different one that was a real mess. And transferring concepts plus. They have learned with the saline solution that it doesn't apply. It's, it's, made for, it's made for U.S. doctors and healthcare people. So they've, the, the, the CMDA gave it to International Health International up in Pennsylvania. I think their office is in Pennsylvania someplace. They've retooled it to work well in different countries. So some Chinese doctors and some of the, were the, ones, some of the ones I was involved with so well, we're just going to start doing a small training in Beijing and Shanghai, and they did. Well, that's grown, and this is some. This is the part of that growth. This was this April, I think April first of this year, that this was meeting. Now, this is just the people that came. This is not all. That number has grown. If you'd have said in 1990, 2000, between that period of time, you'd have that many Chinese doctors meeting one time that were believers, how they can help. Share the faith. I think most people would have said that cannot happen. That, that's happened well. Now, also, just to let you know, at the beginning of this meeting, in the last couple, they were greeted by the police. There's probably reasons for that. But uh, they kept going. They still had their meeting. So they really persevered in this. So that is some of the results. All of these are not from me. Some of my work in the city I was in uh, was involved in this. Another thing, 
if you want to write this website down, drluke.org. So while I was there, I thought, how can I share the gospel with a lot of people? So I ended up teaming with Transworld Radio. How many notes with Transworld Radio? I don't think they have a booth here. Transworld Radio. They're, they're a very large organization just all over the world sending the gospel out through radio in different ways. They had an office in Singapore, and I, I, before I started writing anything, I wanted to talk to someone. So I went down there in Singapore, and they said, we will publish what you write. Because the reason was they don't get many new things. They have to translate people like uh, Chuck Swindoll, John Piper, those kind of guys. There's not much medical that they had. So I talked with Dave Stevens. He gave me his input. Started writing 15-minute healthcare events. There's about 90 on here now. They're actually in multiple languages, African languages, some Indian languages, and they're being used uh, a lot of places around the world now. Really, in a world much, this has had its own, uh, its own life, its own legs. And, uh, but I first started writing, the first time in Chinese, and we broadcast them over, uh, oddly enough, uh, over from Guam, and then from up in a, a Soviet, former Soviet transmitter, I think from Kazakhstan over China. So that covers all of China. Actually, you know, I, I, I was a bit skeptical. Gosh, that's such mass. Does anybody even listen to this stuff? It's shortwave. How many of you have ever had a shortwave radio? Some of you, yeah. I, I've used it when I was overseas. That's, I don't use it here. Uh, so there's a guy that I was working with in China, one of the doctors. He's now a neurosurgeon. I know. He's a believer. Came to faith through the same group we worked with. Asking one night, his English name is Oliver, and I said, Oliver, how did you come to faith in Christ? Because none of their parents were believers. And he said this. He goes, when I was a little boy, like a 10, I had a shortwave radio. Now, I don't know if his parents, I did ask the question, did his parents know he had a shortwave radio? And were they illegal or not? Like, some places are actually illegal. But anyways, I didn't ask that question. He said, so I'd listen, and I'd pick up these stations that were sharing about the Bible and Jesus. That's when he was 10. So later, when he meets us, he's already been exposed to the gospel, and he quickly believed. So that's one story I've made, but there's other stories. So this is some of what I did there, because I was sitting there thinking, how can I share with a lot of Chinese? These can all be downloaded and do it what you want. There's, and also, actually, on here, too, I didn't do these. Uh, another Chinese lady has done these, but there's 50 ethical statements from the U.S. Christian Medical Journal Association. You can go on their CMDA website and look at that. And the British CMF, very similar, they're the only Chinese healthcare ethical statement, biblical ethical statements I know of in the world that exist. And they've been translated to Chinese. They're actually on this website. Now, this is the dental. I'm going to go back to that. So, there was not only the one dentist that was there for about three years. There was another Chinese dentist that came that wanted to minister. They were born in a Chinese culture, educated in the United States. Were there doing 20 plus years of research in the United States. Felt God's call. Come back overseas and she was there for, she was great because she could speak native Chinese. She was really great. Shared the gospel. She was there. And in the meantime, this, the, this hospital 
says, we want a relationship with an American hospital, American dental school. So this same dentist, remember I told you brought that stuff out back in 2000, 2001? He was able to forge, he's actually on that front row, he's the only non-Chinese person there. He was able to forge a relationship with the UNC School of Dentistry, which is now in effect. So we can take as many Christians as we can get over there, students, faculty, to share the gospel there. And they're going to be coming over to the United States. Now, that's kind of a summary. I want to make some points. So I, I told you about the story, the results, and here is some main things. You need to know your skills and what you do well. This includes your healthcare, interpersonal leadership, and self-starting skills. Now, I don't know. Don't think you have to be. I'm a fairly good. That's one of the things I do well. There's things I don't do well. My wife will tell you that laundry list really quick. But I, I'm a good self-starter. And I've learned that in how I just kind of can, can think about things and, and start. That doesn't mean you can keep things going or lead well. Those are two different skill sets. But you need to know your skill set. What do you do well? Now, you don't have to be a good self-starter because the guy that took my place, when the, the clinic, the, the Chinese-American guy that came, the, the doctor, he just came in, and came in and started working the clinic like he would here. That clinic was already up and running. So you don't have to be a self-starter at every place you go. But you need to know what your skill set is, otherwise you'll be very frustrated. And talk to people around you. People have actually told me, they told me, they said, well, you, 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 you kind of work hard and you're a good self-starter. I've heard that consistently. So that didn't, that's not something, so I don't mind kind of doing that. But there's other weaknesses that I have. But you need to know those important. They're very important. These are good, though, in a, I would say, a mission-sharing context. You've got to be dogged in per- persistence. Which is, so we'll talk about self-starter. So you may be on a team, but you still need to be a self-starter, right? You, the, every, in, in, in missions, what you're trying to do is find the lost. How can you share the gospel with them? And let me say, being around Chinese does not mean that you're going to be able to share the gospel with them. There's tons of them around. And just because you're walking around with them on the street, going shopping... You know, arm to arm in a grocery store, Chinese, so you can be literally butting your carts all the time in a Chinese grocery store. Even though you're around, it doesn't mean you can share the gospel with them. You've got to be able to engage them. So you've got you to, you to have ideas. You've got to be thinking, of how can I share the gospel with these people? We found, because we had kids, we invited, oh, I would say, several thousand Chinese to our house in China. That was easy for us. We don't mind having them over. We had from one or two people to groups of 60 at a time. Next, cultural differences. Working in urban areas with government entities brings almost daily challenges. Can you deal with this? It's not to China. If you're, if you're from someplace else, you come to the United States. Dealing with us is different. Dealing with the United States, healthcare system is very complex. It's hard. Same thing. You've got to know that. Can you learn to see the cultural differences' strengths? Chinese are excellent. Take control, people. They are. If you, they, they, they won't just, they won't just take it. They won't. You can't. It's nothing you're going to give to them. They're going to take it. They're going to take it and they're going to own it and do it the way they want to do it. But that's actually good. They're not. They're not going to wait for you to do it. They're going to take it. There's an idea they like. They're going to take it. They're going to adapt it to their culture and they're going to make it work for them. That's a good thing. 
But you've got to be able to live with doing something different. When we open the International Clinic, there's a lot of things I go, it's not the way to do it. But I just left it alone, wait to see what they played out, try to get some points that would be helpful. But that's you've got to learn to let them do things their way. If you're going to work in a government hospital, mission hospitals somewhat similar, but the mission organization... In fact, Dave. You might go Dave Stevens talk this morning. Yeah, he does a great job of what the Mission Hospital looks like, but they have control of it. I didn't have any control. I was just in there giving advice. Perseverance. Changes often in months and years. Can you deal with this? Changes often different than what you have envisioned, which can be good. But can you be flexible enough to deal with it? I think one of the most important things in doing mission work is flexibility because things change all the time and most often often you have no control the gospel and work use every opportunity to share the gospel along the way don't wait I shared with people along the way that I had met remember the lady I mentioned the head of the, the foreign affairs I shared the gospel I bet I've shared with it 30, 40 times she still doesn't believe I saw her my wife and I saw her back in April this year we still shared the gospel still she doesn't believe but I've shared with other people that did believe. Disciple new believers immediately. Use your home as a base. It's, it's easy. It's easy. We would have them over at our house. It's easy to do Bible studies. They're in your home. It's safe as a rule. Let the people you are sharing the gospel see your home and your family. It's amazing what they will say about your faith based on how they see your family work together. Help the new believers know their ministry skills. Summary. Urban ministry was done by Jesus and Paul. They both did it. They did rural, but they did urban. Urban ministries can use any healthcare skills. I've just told you what I did in healthcare and as a doctor. Urban ministry and government hospital has the advantage. This is the key thing. If you leave today from your urban hospital, they won't miss you. But they won't miss the other Chinese doctor that died in the car wreck the day before. They'll, they'll move up. Mission hospitals, the biggest disadvantage they have is keeping staff coming. I'm not being critical of them. I just think that's their big challenge. For working in a government hospital, any place in the world, they do not need you. In the sense that if you left today, it doesn't make any difference. Urban ministries will only grow in the coming decades. Okay, I'm finished. Um, Questions? I want to say something if you don't about visas. Visas is always a challenge. It doesn't make any difference if your company is GTE or whoever it is. Visas are a challenge. For example, right now in India, it's very difficult to get a visa. Any foreigner going in. I have in my passport right now a 10-year Chinese visa. So it's easy right now to get in China. That may change. It's hard to get into India. These things change, but visas drive everything. Yes? If you're bringing in students, because I know we do this still work a lot, where I, where I work sometimes, depending on the country, we'll apply for a tourist visa and say everything across the board that they're tourists because we're not paying for any of the work until volunteer right. work. So we can get in kind of under that blanket. Do you deal with that at all where you apply for a visa? No, I would do tourists. A lot of 
countries use under three months now. So if it's under, most people that come for short term are under three months. So yes, we would do that. Now, if they're going to come for longer, the, the thing to do is put them on a language visa in a university. And you can actually put them in their housing there. It's really safe. University housing is very safe. And you're on there, and we would put, you can put them in there for six months a year or something like that if you're going to do, do something like that. And actually, we did actually have students that would come in on tourist visas, would put them in the universities, that's going to be 20 of them, and let them go work with just pal around with students, share the gospel there. They could eat there, but they, had their, they could take language classes, those kind of things. There's a lot of flexibility, usually. Yes? There are African countries now who will not allow them to do any work at Yes. Okay. License. That's. Thanks for. Bring, I didn't bring that up. That's increasingly a challenge. What you have to know going into the country now. When I went in, I did not require anything to do anything in China. The hospital was my. Seriously, this is true. The hospital was the license. They were the. They were the medical board. They were the malpractice lawyers. The judges. They were it. The hospital is it. That's changing. Changing for Chinese doctors. But, yes, you have to know going up front. And that's the question you're going to ask. If you're going to go in, even as a student, you need to ask, is there anything I need to know legal? In fact, a lot of medical students' schools now are requiring certain amount of medical, even malpractice insurance, even for students sometimes. So you need to ask and know. It's a different world today. And if you're in practice... You can technically be sued for something you did overseas in the United States. I'm not a lawyer, but you have to establish jurisdiction in the United States. But there has been a case out of West Africa that did happen like that. Those are rare, but they can happen. But you need to know, even as a student, what can I do and what can I not do? That's what you need to know. Now, it's different if you're going under your school versus if you're going by yourself. If you're going to go by yourself, you're really under the guideline of the people that take you. Schools, are, as I've learned more controlling, but I understand they're dealing with legal issues that they don't want to have to deal with. But if you're going by yourself, you're just accountable to the people you're with. But you still need to ask, what do I, what can I do and what can I not do? That's a good question. Yes? Is there any different advice that you would give for someone practicing in an American city, the U.S. city? Well, no, because you're going to have to get a license one by the state. Second, you're going to have to get some like, like, for example, my Duke credentialing, it's, this isn't true of most everyone now, it's three months. And they, I have to now, when I applied, came back from China, applied to Duke, they, there was two days I didn't put in there from the time I finished my, resident, my medical school. Two days. They sent it back and said, where were you these two days? I think each state, uh, each province in China is different, but uh, usually once you have uh, your U.S. Uh, medical license, you need to notarize them. And even through the Chinese consulate, um, they pro- probably need uh, like third-party translation, and that's it. And when once you land in China, you basically need to register in the local healthcare authorities. So not, uh, I feel it's not that uh, as complicated as you know, this should be. If they want to hire you, uh, if you have agreement, they will work for you. A key thing in healthcare is not new; it won't be old in the future. Where's the standard of care now? That would be the same in, in the United States. But the standard of care in the United States is whatever happens in the United States. It used to be geographic. It's not. If, if the standard of care in L.A., Seattle, Maine, Miami, Atlanta, Dallas, and everything in between is exactly the same. But it's the same overseas, too. You want to practice the best standard of care you 
have, and you need to learn there, what is their standard? That's what's important. What, what are the, what is their, where's their radar at? That's a good question. Yes. In the United States. Yeah. yeah, so good question. In fact, that whole talk that Dave uh, Walt Laramore, I think he's going to do one tomorrow on that exact topic. Walt Laramore is tomorrow. I looked at that. It's tomorrow at 920. I don't know which room. I pray with a lot of patience, and I'll say this at the end. I'll say, do you mind if I pray with you? I've only had one patient refuse. That's a good way to get in. And they'll, in fact, I've had patients, they'll say when I leave, you didn't pray for me this time. Can you come back and pray for me? Uh, I had one just, this, it's, it's sad but funny. I, I finished, this lady had a tragic tragedy, and so I said, do you mind if I pray for you? And she said, yes, yeah, so I prayed. And I finished, and I said, in Jesus' name, she goes, she goes, I'm Jewish, but I still like the prayer to God. <laughs> I forgot I didn't think about that, but she, she was okay. Um, what you want to do is use those times then for the future is to get into gospel conversation. If they're going to let you pray, then you come back and say, you know, you let me pray with you. Do, you know, do you, do you go to a church? I mean, what do you do? You have any faith? You can open the door. And from that, some people say no, but I'd like to have one or something like that. But those are ways to do it, yes. Especially if a patient asks you a question. You can't get in trouble because they ask you the question. But you're right. It's increasingly a challenge in that way. I think what's more difficult is actually coworkers and the team that you're working with and seniors that are above you. It's sometimes hard to... Uh, are you a medical student? Yes, I am. Oh, yeah. That's a little bit more dicey, but uh, I felt... I fi- so I finished medical school in 83... I still felt that same pressure from some of the faculty as what would they think. I would just go back to the rooms myself and share, try to share. Just find time during the day, later in the day. If I had time, they, and the patients are usually just sitting there not doing anything. Okay, thanks so much. I'll be here if you have any other questions.